So, if, we, if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles today, turn to Leviticus chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt and do not tear your clothes or you will die and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Moses said to Aaron and his remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, take the grain offerings left over from the food offerings, prepared without yeast, and present it to the Lord and eat it beside the altar, for it is most holy. Eat it in the sanctuary area because it is your share and your son's share of the food offerings presented to the Lord, for so I have been commanded. But you and your sons and your daughters may eat the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. Eat them in a ceremonially clean place. They've been given to you and your children as your share of the Israelites' fellowship offerings. The thigh that was presented and the breast that was waved must be brought with the fat portions of the food offerings to be waved before the Lord as a wave offering. This will be the perpetual share for you and your children as the Lord has commanded. When Moses inquired about the goat of the sin offering and found that it had been burned up, he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining sons, and asked, why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sanctuary area? It is most holy. It was given to you to take away the guilt of the community by making atonement for them before the Lord. Since its blood was not taken into the holy place, You should have eaten the goat in the sanctuary area as I commanded. Aaron replied to Moses, Today they sacrificed their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. But such things as this have happened to me. Would the Lord have been pleased if I'd eaten the sin offering today? 
And when Moses heard this, he was satisfied. And that's the end of chapter 10. And for most of us, I'd imagine, the link between that and Easter is probably not all that clear. In fact, all of that, and I've mentioned this over the last few weeks, all of the sacrifices and, and all of the, the, the tabernacle and the, the holy implements and all of these things are so far from our experience of what it means to worship God and to be his own people that we do sometimes... We, Leviticus is a book we have to dig into to understand the principles underlying all of these actions which still teach us about who God is and who we are as his people, even though the practices, like the, you know, all these different types of offerings and you know, priests and, and not going into the holy place, is not something that's part of what it means for us to be worshippers of God. Now, I've just read out chapter 10, but this week we're looking at, at chapters 8 to 10, only three chapters this week, not seven like last week. Uh, but remember the big picture stuff that we want to keep in mind through all of this, looking at all these laws and all of these things that happened, is that God is dwelling among his people. That's at the heart of what's going on at this book. God has had, they've prepared the tabernacle. God is dwelling in it. But God is holy and his people are not holy. And for sin to come into the presence of a holy God uh, is, well, God's holiness means that sin that is brought near to him must be destroyed. So God is dwelling among his people and he wants relationship with them, but at this point, the people are still outside the tent. We saw how Leviticus started with God speaking to, them, to Moses from the tent. And we jumped ahead and we looked at Numbers chapter 1 about how God was speaking to Moses in the tent. At this point, we're still outside. God has put in place all of these sacrifices that we looked at last week. This is how you worship. This is how he's teaching all of Israel that their sins need to be atoned for. That their, the, the blood, the death that their sins deserve can be shed by another in their place. But before all of this worship can happen, there needs to be priests. Priests who are like half pastor standing up preaching the word and half butcher that deal with all of these sacrifices happening in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And these priests are set apart to be mediators between God and his people. Now the thing is, they didn't have to go on some kind of quest to go and find these holy items for this holy tabernacle. And the, the people, to be priests, didn't just come down from heaven perfectly ready-made as these holy priests ready for God to serve him. These were ordinary people and the tabernacle and the things in it were things that were made by ordinary people, all touched by and stained by the sin and the brokenness in this world. 
So before they could be used to worship God, they needed to be made holy. And they're made holy by being set apart and by being atoned for, by, uh, again, with using the sacrifices to show that blood needed to be shed to, to take away, to, to substitute for the guilt, for the sin in all of these people and in all of these things so that they could be made holy. And remember, we, we mentioned last week, it's very important, the, sin, or the, the blood of animals never actually took away sin. But it was there to teach the people of Israel about what would take away their sins, the one who would take away their sins. And so we have, in, in chapter 8, there's a big ritual. Um, we don't tend to have that many rituals and things in our world these days, but think of, it's like a wedding. One of the most important rituals and ceremonies we still have, in which there are, there are symbolic elements that talk about what's going to happen. There's the ring that symbolises you know, the, the continuation, the eternity of love. There's are the vows in which people make these promises to one another. They make a covenant with one another that this is who we're going to be. And then those who were not married at the start of the wedding, by the end of the wedding, have now become a married couple, brought together in God's sight. And that's sort of what we see here in chapter 8. Those who were not priests, those who were not holy, through this ritual that, with symbolic elements that teach us about what it was all for, become holy and set apart to be priests for God. And so running through it very quickly, first Moses puts this, the ceremonial uh, priest's clothing on Aaron and on his sons, and Aaron is the high priest, so he gets uh, special additional parts of his clothing with all of these uh, gems and things on it which symbolise the 12 tribes of Israel and show that he is there as a representative for the whole people. And then Moses anoints the tabernacle and everything in it uh, with oil set apart for that purpose because this is where God is going to dwell and the things that are used in his, in his uh, tabernacle, in his throne room, in his uh, palace needed to be holy. And then Moses anoints Aaron and his sons with this oil because the priests needed to be holy, needed to be set apart for a special purpose. And then their sins needed to be atoned for. There's no suggestion really that Aaron and his sons were necessarily any better people than some of the other people around them. But they were the ones God had chosen to be his priests. And so their sins needed to be atoned for. And so Moses offers a sin offering. And the blood from the sin offering is, poured, uh, is, is used on the altar, the altar of burnt offering, to purify the altar. And then following the sin offering, they offer a burnt offering to God, a substitution for the priests. And then... There's the, the whole deal with the wave offering and waving these things before God. And then you know, normally that symbolises like, yes, these belong to God, but God is then giving it back to the priests to be their portion, to be their food. 
And then Moses takes some of the anointing oil and some of the blood from the sacrifices and he places it on the priests, uh, on, the, on their ears and on their toes and sprinkles it over their garments. And then there's a fellowship offering offered. Uh, that, that was the one where the people could come together and eat the sacrifice that was offered. And then the priests have to stay in the courtyard of the holy place for seven days. So that's, that's in a very quick rundown, chapter 8, all of the things that happens that Moses does. Now the interesting thing is that Moses does all of these things to make the tabernacle holy, to make the priests holy, because Moses is not a priest. Aaron and his sons are the priests. But at this stage, there is no other priest to anoint them and to make them holy. And so Moses, as God's prophet, representing God to the people, he does these things to make them holy, to show that God is making his people holy. And he points us to Jesus as the one who will make us holy. But I'll get more into that a little bit later. But two things we learn from chapter 8 that apply here and now to today. No one is made holy, is born holy. There's no one in, well, apart from Jesus. No one has come down perfectly holy, untouched by the stain of sin in this world. But we can be made holy through the work that God has done, through the sacrifices offered on our behalf. And related to that, the other thing that the priests were reminded of every time when when Moses had to make these sacrifices for their sins, for the sins of the priests, and then thereafter when they had to make sacrifices for their own sins, it's a constant reminder that we had to be made holy. That all, including me, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no room for me to sit and look down on others as though I've become holy through my own efforts, as though I didn't need God's help. So there are two things that we take from chapter 8. But then as we move along to chapter 9, time jumps along to the eighth day after their seven days of being in temple, the end of the period of their ordination. So they're now ordained as priests over all of Israel. And the purpose of all of this, why God wanted to make them go through all of this ordination and sacrifices and all of these things, like I said, it sounds so foreign to us. But Actually, the purpose is very clear and something that we can relate to uh, very much. We read before any of this in Exodus 29, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. It's all about God having a relationship with his people. 
It's all about them coming to know more of who he is as he lives among them and dwells among them. So God has made a way for relationship and wants relationship with his people. And that's uh, mediated through these priests. And these priests are now ordained. But before they can tend to the sins of the community and enable this community to worship God uh, through all of the offerings and sacrifices we've taken place, first they have to make atonement for their own sin. And so in chapter 9, we see the priests begin with offering a sacrifice for their own sin. This is the first time they've done it themselves. Last time it was all Moses. And so in chapter 9, they offer a sin offering. And then they offer a burnt offering. And then they offer a grain offering. And all of these things that we've seen are very much following the pattern of what we saw in chapter 8 that Moses did for them. But the high priest had to make atonement for their own sin before they could mediate between God and the people, before they could represent God to the people. But we're reminded in this section that, as I said, this was all about relationship with God. We find relationship with God in his place among his people. And our relationship with God is mediated through a high priest. Not the same type of high priest as they had in those days. But a high priest who intercedes for us from the very throne room of God himself. And we see that God accepts all that the, the priests have done, accepts all, that, uh, all of these sacrifices. Because at the end of chapter 9, after, after through chapter 8 and chapter 9, we read repeatedly that Moses and Aaron did exactly as God had commanded them. And at the end of it, we see the glory of the Lord settles on the tabernacle. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. There we are. After having to be outside, they went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. I'm not sure if joy is what Leviticus usually sparks in you as you read it, but that's what it was all about, the joy that God is now dwelling among his people and can have relationship with them. And it's this great high point, the culmination of everything that's been happening since what, like halfway through Exodus when they get to Sinai and God reveals his plan for this tabernacle that he's going to dwell among them. And it's all been building up to this and we hit this great high point and then immediately afterward we have the passage that I started with. Nadab and Abihu. They come into the temple and we're told they offer unauthorised fire or strange fire, depending on the translation, to God. And God strikes them down where they stand. These priests that had 
gone through all of this ordination and all of the things that we've seen in chapters 8 and 9. And so the question is, what's the big deal? Why, why does God strike them down for bringing an offering they weren't supposed to? What is this all about? Well, the big deal is, and we, we get this uh, shown to us from uh, Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now, I don't have my picture up here uh, loaded up this week. But the tabernacle was made of three main spaces. You had an outer courtyard which had sort of walls around it but was not a roofed area. And that was where the people of Israel could come in and ha bring their sacrifices and have them offered to the Lord. And that was where the uh, altar of burnt offering was. And then towards one end of this uh, courtyarded area, there was a large tent and the first sort of two-thirds of that tent was the holy place where the priests could enter. And that was where there was an altar of incense and other things where the, and, and showbread where the priests would bring some of those offerings in. And then the back third was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and was God's throne room, the place where he dwelt in a special way. Now, from what was said there in Leviticus chapter 16, it makes clear what is left slightly vague in chapter 10, that Nadab and Abihu went into the most holy place when they were not supposed to. And it's also possible, it's not said for certain, but it's possible that having a little too much to drink might have also been part of the problem. Because just after all of this, in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8, the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink when you go into the tent of meeting. And the placement of that order seems like it might be telling us something. But the big deal of why they died instantly, the issue is the holiness of God. Even though God had made his dwelling among his people, even though he'd provided this whole sacrificial system, even though the priests had been set apart and made holy, it still didn't mean that people could just come straight into the unadulterated presence of God, come barging into his throne room without it being a problem. Only the high priest could enter once a year. And only after a whole bunch of particular sacrifices were made on that day. It's a powerful reminder for us. The main reason it's there is to remind us, even after all of the things we've seen so far, sin still separated us from God. The tabernacle, the priest, this was never the, the proper solution to the problem. This was 
a solution that allowed God to dwell among his people in a special way, but this was never the full solution to the problem that God is holy and that we are sinful and that a holy God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. So the priests and the sacrifices didn't fully solve the problem. What they do is they point us to the solution. They point us to the greater high priest. They point us to the high priest who doesn't have to make sacrifices for his own sin before he could make sacrifices for the sins of the rest of the world. Point us to the high priest who, I mean, you could have a great high priest in those days and then they would die and the next high priest would be hopeless. But it points us to the high priest who reigns forever and whose kingdom will know no end. It points us, of course, to Jesus, the one who is not just the sacrifice made so that our sins can be forgiven, but the high priest who intercedes between us and God and through whom we are made holy, through whom we are made able to come into the presence of God. The high priest makes us holy. Jesus makes us holy so that we can have a relationship with God way more than what was available even to the priests in the time of Leviticus. We've read these verses so many times. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Leviticus 10 tells us what a big deal it is that we can have confidence to enter the most holy place. That something incredible had to take place before people who are stained by sin could enjoy that level of relationship with God. And something incredible did happen. God himself, who was there in the beginning, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. And he himself bore our sins on that tree so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. We know that Jesus' death has forgiven our sins. We know that he's made us holy, that when God looks at us, he sees the holiness of Jesus. 
Because all of our sins were paid for on that cross all of those years ago. We know that we have those things. And Leviticus 10 reminds us never to take that for granted. But to realise the enormity of what God has done for us. Reminds us that God is holy. And so when we worship God, we worship a God, our God, who deserves our respect and our reverence. I've known some people over the years who, uh, you know, would pray something like this, yeah, big G, we just want to come to you today. And it's very, very warm and very relational. But I note something in the name that God gave us for himself, the one that Jesus encouraged us to call him by. Father. Heavenly Father. Is a worship of a father. One who both has an incredibly close and loving relationship with us, but also one who is higher than us and deserving of respect and honour. Now, when I say that it's important that we have reverence in our worship of God, I don't mean that worship can never be fun, that you can never worship with a smile on your face. But it reminds us that God is more than just our mate. It reminds us that God is not a genie who we go to for all of the things that we want him to give us. God is a holy God. He is over us. But he loves us so much. He is our heavenly father. And so I think Hebrews 10 and Leviticus 10 bring an important balance into thinking about who God is to me in my life, in my worship, in my prayers. That he is both one who loves me so much that he sent his only son, but also a God who is so holy that he had to send his only son or else there was no way that we could come anywhere near to the presence of God without expectation of his judgment. And so, as we worship God with reverence, and the New Testament tells us much about how we should worship God to glorify him. And we be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. That we sing and make music from our heart to the Lord. And those are all good things that we do. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. But most importantly, that as we come together to worship God, that we worship him in spirit and in truth, with a heart that loves him and 
not forgetting just the immensity of what it is that Jesus has done for us. That how incredible it is that we can have confidence to enter the most holy place. Not because I've done enough good stuff, but through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Lord, we praise you, Heavenly Father. We praise you because you are holy and we are sinful. But instead of turning your back on us or destroying us all in your wrath against sin, you instead made a way that we could be made holy. And you pointed to this way back in Leviticus with the priests and the sacrifices. You showed us that you wanted to have relationship with us but that our sins needed to be dealt with and the price for them needed to be paid. And then you showed your love to us in a way we could never have anticipated. When, Lord, you came and paid that price on our behalf, you bore our sins, you were crushed for our iniquities, And the punishment that brought us peace with God was placed on you. Jesus, we thank you for your astounding love for us. May we always remember the immensity of what it is that you've done for us. May we never forget how deeply you love us. Let us not see you as holy but far away and distant. But let us also remember that you love us intensely as a father, as a holy God, and may we worship you reverently in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.